right, everyone. Well, hello and welcome to By the Numbers, episode 15. As usual, I'm joined by Alex McNabb. And for the first time with all three of us, we have Borzoi here. How are you, Borzoi? Hi. You know, this is, I mean, we've guested together on Teams, but you know, this is the first time you and I have ever done a show together. Yeah, this is the first uh, dedicated show that we've ever been on, and uh, we're actually uh, having a conversation. On that TDS, we were, we were just kind of like ships in the night passing very briefly. Well, I'm, just, I, I'm, just there to, I'm just there to horrify you with memes. Oh, God. Okay. Please, I still someone, – someone on Telegram made a longhouse post last week, and I was so upset that I even knew what that meant. <laughs> and I'm well, like, I, I, I blame Borzoi. <laughs> well, you, you should. I also you were you did that whole episode. I forget what oh, what the topic was, but you mentioned like women in short term relationships. Um, and I mentioned that the uh, I told you about that they have a term for this. It's called cuffing season. Yeah. Whoa, 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 what, what? <laughs> Go on. So, so women. Uh, of millennial and zoomer <laughs> generations have this term for when they do they basically it's their winter relationship that they mm-hmm. usually and they usually dump the guy come spring or they or the or some other breakup happens but they call it cuffing season where basically you just shack up with somebody temporarily for the colder uh, winter or, months leading into Valentine's Day to to like yeah. stay warm. Uh, I guess that's one way. That, that's one way of putting it, I suppose. Okay. I mean, yeah, I understand. I mean, heating expenses are getting fucking ridiculous. That's 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 why that's why you want to find a, a fat girl. We can't Billy Eilish post on the show, okay, <laughs> I still. Any, have, anyway, we're off to a I bad start. Have, this is this is not how we start our show. The first thing that we do when we do buy the numbers, we talk about boomers. So yes, for this episode, we got to go all the way to Panama. So I was telling, I got home today and I wrote in the in the group chat, I'm like, McNabb, have you heard about the Panama boomer? And McNabb hadn't. So basically, this American boomer in Panama, a, a lawyer apparently, he's a retired he some, lawyer. He, yeah, is he doing like the expat retired life? Because that was big in Ecuador. Yeah, yeah. It's, still, it's a big thing in Panama now. And... He got stopped on the road, along with a bunch of other people, by climate activists who were protesting a mine. He got out of his car, and he was trying to, like, move their rocks and the tires and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he eventually got so... F- now, he did all of this with a gun in his hand. He pulled the gun <laughs> out of his pocket, like, the minute he got out of the car. He did all of this with a gun in his hand, and eventually he got so frustrated that he gunned two of them down in the street. Oh my god! Yeah, the the photos, like the showcasing, is like tumbling <laughs> through, through the, the air. air. <laughs> and he's just executing people. Yeah, there, no expression on his face. He looks like a like a fucking moot, like a communist apparatchik you'd see in a movie. Just like no emotion, gunning people it's, it's down. Just, it speaks to my point that boomers feel perfectly justified in abusing a helpless person. If they're so helpless, he... they can't fight back. Did he earn his 72 Filipino wives in the villages? <laughs> no, he's already got at least one, right? He's on his... But, like, but Boomer, his isn't that what Boomer martyrdom entails? Like if you murder somebody <laughs> and also die in the process... I guess he didn't die in the process, but you murder uh, somebody uh, and die in the process, you've earned your 72, uh, 72 Filipino uh, wives in Valhalla, the villages. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that Boomers don't do this in McDonald's all the time. Like, you forget their ketchup, and then they just shoot you at the register? 
there was the it's, boomer. There was the boomer in Texas who shot who shot someone in a movie theater, who who uh, was blocking the screen or something. Oh well, that's this happened, this, happened, this happened a couple years ago. <laughs> so, do you think the boomer violence is escalating or is about the same level you would expect? I'm not sure. I think it's escalated slightly. They're agitated. I think the boomers they are seem, a bit agitated by yeah, the world. The, the That's an episode you guys should do, though. actually. Uh, boomer uh, violence. episode on boomer violence. Uh, do, uh, <laughs> look, look at the numbers. No, really, like look at the numbers on boomer violence. See, like what it looks like. Because I, I would be genuinely interested in what's going on there, if anything's going on there. Well, the crime. The, I, so this is the thing about boomer crime. Like the, the stories are always super wild. Like boomer, boomer. Sure. boomer <laughs> Boomer runs over UAW protesters with his truck. Boomer guns down climate change protesters. Boomer shoots man in movie theater. Like, their violence is really weird. Haphazard. But it's very... So this this goes back to the show, the show we did about boomers. It's incredibly individualistic violence. Like, you are in my way on the highway. I'm going to mm-hmm. kill you. Yeah. Stochastic, stochastic boomerism. <laughs> it's everywhere. I'm afraid it's infecting younger, the younger generations. That's just a tragedy. See, I don't think so. Young people. This is something. I. This is one of the points I always make about like millennial and Zoomer superiority is that we're very polite. We're not rude, and we don't harangue people. Mm-hmm. But boomer, boomers are like the seriously the rudest generation to ever exist. I'm convinced. They're just sociopathic. Like if they if they sense that they can abuse somebody, they're gonna abuse them. Yes. Well, we're we're a broken down we're broken down, beaten down doomer generations. But uh, if I let you guys keep going, this will become an episode on boomers again. Why? So why am I here? Boomers episode two. That's every episode, dude. So why am I here exactly? (laughs) Yeah. So Uh, your 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 part. We we needed two demographics. We needed the the zoomer. And then we also needed the two disgruntled married guys. Yeah. 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 So w- w- it was McNabb's idea originally. He came to me, oh, God, more than a week ago at this point and wanted to talk about divorce. And he divorced my wife. Right. I wasn't yeah, I've been I wasn't giving everyone advice that. about divorce. Lately. <laughs> we, he, doesn't all, it, he doesn't really want to talk. So this is the thing. Whenever McNabb comes to me with an idea, it's not just about the idea and discuss the idea he also has recommendations and in this case it's divorce your wife i thought that's why we're doing the show is we're going to publicly announce on the show that we're divorcing our wives well right now mcnav's grind is uh kill your dog divorce your wife buy a falcon (laughs) and and get a falcon (laughs) well however you acquire acquire a falcon acquire falcon (laughs) divorce wife kill dog acquire falcon this is fantastic i love this have you looked into falconry? It's fascinating. <laughs> no, I no, but you've been blowing you up should. the group chat with it for two days. <laughs> like I was talking to God. No, I was talking to Mike. I was talking to Mike yesterday, and I opened Threema and I look at the chat and I'm like, these motherfuckers are talking about pigeons and falcons and dogs. What the hell is going on in here? And I just had to close it. I haven't even read through the whole thing. Oh well, good well that, there's a whole dog argument there, but like, again, let's get into divorce because otherwise we will. Yes, just yes. Litigate, we can't talk about group dogs. chat arguments. Yeah, let's, so. let's not relitigate group chat. Well, well, um, is, is, is falconry at least on the table? So what's the in what's a, the thesis here a, of, of this divorce episode? Like I know yeah, you guys so, typically have a kind of a thesis of every episode. Yeah, you, so, uh, yeah. McNabb, McNabb came to me 
and he was interested in, and, and I think it's a good idea, he was basically interested in deconstructing the manosphere idea that uh, women are unilaterally divorcing men in basically mm-hmm. all cases in this weird attempt to climb a social ladder. Mm-hmm. Oh, hypergamy. Yeah, yeah. Hypergamy, yeah. Um, just all of these dumb things, these like talking points that float around. Uh, one of the ones that it's, you see everywhere is like women initiate 70% of divorces. Or is it college age women or it's closer to 80%, something like that? At the at the general population of women initiate seventy percent of all divorces. College college educated women who get divorced initiate ninety percent of those divorces. There you go. Yeah. So, but well, that, let me, which, let me, okay. Go, go ahead, Porza. I was gonna say, like, so let me let's kind of like if we're gonna jump into some numbers here because there's a lot of stuff going around here. Let's go with the let's start with the number that I'm gonna pretend like I don't already that I don't already know the answer to this, but. You have this number that gets thrown around that half of divorces essentially, and I mean half in marriages essentially ended divorce. So is that true or false? What's the data on that? Right. So that is actually categorically false. That's been false the, for a while. The the only generation that came close, forty eight percent of all their marriages ended in divorce, are our favorite degenerate boomers. Mm-hmm. They are the only generation that neared this statistic. Again, about forty eight percent. Ever since the peak of boomer divorce, which was the 1990s, divorce in general in the United States has been trending back toward the historic norm. It's just like the number of sex partners that people have. It's just like the amount of drugs and alcohol people are doing. After the peak of boomer degeneracy, we have been trending back toward a historic average. Right. That's a good place to start because you saw this increase in divorce rate, and some people have blamed this on no-fault divorce. But my thesis is no-fault divorce is an exponent of the overall trend towards divorce being more permitted and people seeking divorce more often. It came secondary to that. Like the initial so causation sy- is really sy- boomer. Symptom not cause then. Yes. Yes. Symptom yes. Not so cause. we have the graph in the, in the prep chat: divorces per one thousand married women, nineteen forty to twenty fifteen. And it, it's so, it's sort of about ten per a thousand. It peaked at the very end of World War II, went back down, but then it it was already exploding in the in post nineteen sixty five. Going really, the the rate was increasing rapidly toward fifteen over fifteen. Then California no fault divorce hit in the nineteen seventies. Mm-hmm. So, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan right. was, was responsible. And he actually says that he regrets that. He regrets That's passing interesting. That. I didn't know that. But yeah. there, I couldn't find any evidence, and I was looking through the – and I love the NIH. They're great for prepping for shows. I couldn't find any evidence that no fault – when no-fault divorce came in, that it actually increased the rate of increase in the rate of divorce. It just it just seems to have happened in the midst of a divorce explosion, and I can't causally link the two in the way that most people try to, which is that no-fault divorce caused the divorce explosion. The divorce explosion was already happening. We were already mm-hmm. in the middle of it. 
Yeah, and my, my understanding one of the justifications for doing, doing no-fault divorce as a, a legal uh, remedy was that prior to that, you had to provide reasons for the divorce, which meant that people would make stuff up and basically accuse their partners of being abusive or, or being psychologically manipulative or something like that. When the truth of the matter was, they just wanted to get separated. Right. There was. I had read one article, but it wasn't a scientific article, so I never put it in the prep. But it was. Uh, it, it was one article about how a lot of women would accuse their husband of adultery. And the mm-hmm. other interesting one is that when before no-fault divorce, if both parties wanted to get a divorce, what they would usually do is the man would cop to adultery that he never committed. Like, mm-hmm. she wants out of the marriage, he wants out of the marriage, so he would admit to adultery so that they could both get out of this marriage, despite the fact that it was a complete lie. Before no fault divorce came in, I found that very interesting. I yeah, no, I'm not. Take, I'm not taking the position that that I'm in support of no fault divorce as a as a, a legal standard, but I think it's important to understand that prior to no fault divorce, there were also bad incentives and problems. the The prior status quo was well, not it's, perfect it's, either. It's funny that you mentioned that because an example that comes to mind, and this is just an anecdotal example, but from the 19th century in in Europe in Denmark. The perception because perceptions of social standing and honor and the like are, you know, part and parcel of the of of culture within this. So the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he was engaged to be married to uh, a woman named Regine Olsen, whom he, he did deeply love. But he was a very odd person and just didn't feel like he was the sort of person who should get married. And he broke off the engagement. But because that looks really bad for the – in this time period, in this culture, it looks really bad for the woman to do this thing. He basically acted like a fool and uh, and a cad in public so that everyone thought – like would think that she broke it off with him in order to save her like, – in order so that she wouldn't have this black mark on her and people would – like she would – her marriage prospects would become uh, uh, fewer and, and like he, he, he basically – Spare her he, honor. He, yeah, spare her honor. Thank you. Like I'm struggling to I'm struggling to speak here, but you get what I'm saying here. Like you you end up with these quirks and culture of ways to to get around these issues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there was a lot of that going on before no fault divorce. And I have to echo McNabb's sentiment, which is that I don't know that no fault divorce is a good solution to two people who are unhappy. My personal opinion, and I I, I did want to bring this in. My personal opinion is that. I can't think of a good reason for two people who want to divorce, so a, a, a mutually consented divorce, to be forced to stay together by the state. If your children, if your children are over eighteen, and you mm-hmm. are both done with this relationship, I cannot see a reason that you should be forced to stay together. I do oh. think that the goal of lifelong marriage—it's it, a goal, it's an ideal—but I, I can't justify two people being forced to stay together. That's also, just my personal. An addendum to that is if you if you've had children and raised them, and I don't know a partner dies or divorce or whatever, if you're not going to remarry and have more children, you should not remarry. You just shouldn't. It doesn't make any sense for your existing children for you to remarry. Yeah, we talked about this in the Boomer episode. I because Boomers, there's a set of Boomers who serially remarry mm-hmm. and divorce again. If you are 55 years old, just live with the person. Right. 
I don't know why you have to. Uh, otherwise, make your whole yeah. family go through this rigmarole. You're, yeah, you're gonna. You be can split. find examples of that even in like 19th century uh, yeah, cultures just, of, of this occurring. I, right, because because yeah, they cared about like where their assets were going to go in the future. Why on earth would you split that fifty fifty with someone other than your children? But this this does bring us into another topic about modern divorce. You know, I mentioned how divorce rates are going down. Mm-hmm. They peaked in the night. Pardon me. They peaked in the nineteen eighties at twenty two point six per a hundred thousand. That was the peak of boomer divorce and it held roughly there until the 1990s for for boomers parents i think that's the silent generation and the war generation they were about nine per a thousand and we're now we're at about 14 per a thousand it's 15 in the graph i have but i saw Mm -hmm. 2013 data it's about 14 per a hundred thousand however something to remember in that statistic is that boomers are still inflating divorce rates in 2010, in 2010, 27% of all divorces were people 50 and older. In 2019, it was 36%. Uh, I really, I just don't understand what these people are doing. I don't know either. I don't. This, it's a mystery to me that they. It is well, a lifelong addiction to I divorce. Just, I don't understand. And that's the thing. It's like if you've been divorced once, then there's a higher probability that if you remarry, you'll get divorced again. Like I I said this to you guys after your Boomer episode. This ties into this because you're talking about some of the quirks of Boomers and and their relationship with institutions. And one thing that generationally we tend to have very differently from them is because we don't have the experience of the continuity of these institutions. Boomers did, and so they have a they tend to have a cargo cult mentality. Like I'm doing this because that's what you're supposed to do, even though like it's been hollowed out from the inside and is actually counterproductive to even like if, if a tradition and an institution are dead it's counterproductive they just go through the motions of it as though mm-hmm. it is without having an understanding of what those things actually mean so what you ended up having with our generations was people just are flat out against marriage completely they just have or they just have kids out of wedlock or if they're going to get married they take it seriously because they they approach it from now, that's not obviously not all, like, but I'm just saying from a trends pr- perspective, they take it seriously as what it's supposed to mean because they've seen what the divorce culture kind of wrecked upon this country, which is why people go, it, they, they don't want to do a lukewarm thing, which is kind of what boomers tend to do. It, things are lukewarm. You just do it because you're supposed to. Do it. It's just how things are supposed to be without an understanding of the meaning behind that. Mm-hmm. And, and so, like, I was looking at this one of the articles you have in here is uh, not getting divorced could save your marriage. And this is, um, I've talked with my wife about other couples before and issues that they're going through. And the thing I always say is that, is that having children is not going to like fix the, uh, the problems in your marriage. But if you have kids and you have the right mindset towards marriage, you will, you will put those kids first and you'll set aside your differences to work on that marriage i've seen this happen with couples that have the right mindset on that whereas people who they get married and then they think oh maybe a kid will fix the marriage like no it's not you went in into it with the wrong mindset but this is kind of what i think you're seeing with the marriage trends with the younger generations is that those who are getting married want to get married and want to stay married and want to figure out how to make that work instead of just taking for granted oh i got married that's just what you're supposed to do it'll just work yeah 
Absolutely. I think I think Go people ahead. who marry are committed to it because I mean the American family was essentially destroyed by the boomer penchant for divorce. And enough people have now lived through that that when they marry they, they know they know that they don't want to visit that upon their children. Yeah, and I've and when when you ha- and when you have those kids and if uh, marriage pro- like marriage problems crop up, you work through them because you started with the correct mindset in the first place. Is that I want to have children? Like this is something. It's not like I've seen this happen a lot with a lot of couples. And this is and this is across all generations, but people children are almost like incidental and almost like a thing that like maybe I'll ha- I'll want to have them down the line or what have you, and. It's it doesn't prioritize things in the right way. So once the, once the pressure is put on the marriage, then it's that's the real test, and a lot of them just break because they didn't have the correct grounding in what is the purpose of marriage. Well, the purpose of marriage is for children and assets. It's, I right, mean, right. It's, you, a, you, it's, you, a, it's great. It's great if you have a a a lifelong fulfilling loving relationship with your wife that or your spouse that is the ideal. But I mean, come on, like. You're, married people know like there's ups and downs. There's like, so, and that that passionate romantic love can like can sputter, die out for a while, can be reignited. That fluctuates all the time. But what marriage protects is children and assets first and foremost. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a container for children. Uh, children, of course, it's a big investment. It's it's like training a falcon. Like you're gonna have to put a lot <laughs> of work into that. Of, and of course, that can actually need special equipment. <laughs> yeah, you need yeah. special equipment. You need special food. <laughs> Lots of money. Well, and, and uh, well, another statistic you guys love about basically the, be- the the highest rates of marriage are among the most educated people, and that's proof of what I'm saying right there. Is because the most educated, you know, without getting into the debate and argument on credentialism, you do have to have a certain level of intelligence and time preference to be able to make it through all of that academia and having a an ability to plan for the future. It's not something you're just going to be willy-nilly about. So right. this is it's not surprising man- to me that the educated stay married. They get married more this, and they stay married. This was a big manosphere narrative that I think was one of the impetuses in the conversation mm-hmm. Alex and I had, which is there's two things to this narrative. The first part of this narrative is that all women who attend colleges become blown-out hoes. Mm-hmm. And the second part of the narrative is these damn educated women – don't want to get married, don't can't stay married, they have no relationship, no family. Well, mm-hmm. they're very wrong in the probability that a marriage will survive at least 20 years is 78% among women who hold a bachelor's degree. Yes. It's 52% so. among all women and it's 40% among high school educated women. Yes. So it's the inverse. A, yes, it's a direct contradiction to what they say. If if you are a gambling man, you should bet on a college educated woman. Now, of course, the flip side is if if your marriage isn't good, she's she's going to initiate a divorce. But <clears throat> there is something there is if you kind of read because I'm looking at this Pew Research thing, the link between a college education and a lasting marriage. There is something that's going to be um, something that's going to be worrisome to. To our people, but it's worth addressing because you do have the statistic, as you said, like bachelor's degree, 78 uh, percent will have long have a long lasting marriage. But the highest racial demographic uh, is Asians, although there's been a drop, it seems. Uh, oh, no, they're doing duration of marriage here. Yeah. Uh, you have Asian, Hispanic, white and black 
and probability and this is probability that first marriage will sur- will survive among women and women are at 53% third place which mm. is just behind hispanic at 54% but asians have 69%. So and it's not surprising to me because when you look at higher education you do see a lot of white male and jewish with asian women marriages within that demographic. Well it's also that asian I mean so another thing is that it's where these people come from I've written about in white papers before about 60% of the asian population in the united states are immigrant. Immigrants are the or the direct children of immigrants. And those populations are going to retain marriage and family values from where they come from. I mean, you look at the several million Filipinos in the United States, it is still a fairly Catholic country. Hell, divorce, divorce either isn't legal there at all, or only very recently in the last couple of years became legal. You can't get a divorce in the Philippines. Like, so is there's that why also, boomers love it so much? <laughs> there's also that cultural difference, I think. You know what boomers love it? That, that's why boomers in the Philippines have to kill their wives. So there's there's an well there's an article from the New York Times five days ago. How long will divorce remain illegal in the Philippines? Yeah, yeah. There's that one. And there's, uh, and there's a campaign right now with uh, um, some boomers' future ex-wife wearing a shirt that says "Divorce is a human right." Uh, Malta, which is a white country, they only re- uh, only recently legalized divorce. Within the deck, within like the last decade, mm-hmm. and they did it by public referendum. And forty-seven percent of people voted against legalizing <laughs> divorce. <laughs> yeah, it's a very. They're. Very, I mean, the Maltese are basically uh, similar to Italians. Like they are the kind of their own thing, but they're basically closer to Italians. Very, very interesting. These countries that waited this long to. Uh... Waited this long to legalize divorce. I, 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 Ireland famously had divorce illegal, I think, up until the 1990s. I could believe that. Might I can't remember when it got uh, legalized, but it, divorce was it was very like for a, a kind of perceived as a Western European country. Um, Ireland was very famous about its illegality of divorce to the point that they they would use they would create media to basically for both like divorce and abortions that was all about Irish having to go over to England to do this kind of stuff <laughs> Cross the border into Northern Ireland and get a divorce. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so the other, one of the things that made me interested in this, uh, I, was, I was listening to a podcast that was digging into one of these uh, surveys here. Um, let's see, which one was it? It's from the National Library of Medicine. Reasons for divorce and recollections of premarital intervention, implications for improving relationship function. Because there is a, a thing in here that oh, people yeah, are yeah. banding about, uh, lack of commitment being the number one cited reason for divorce. It's like it's 75%. But then if you continue to read into that, at 59.6%, it's infidelity or extramarital affairs. So it would... Yeah, too much conflict or arguing, 61%. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm looking at the data in the, in the prep chat now. It was basically this list of surveys as to why people were getting divorced. Um, and people had... a 40% of people's spouses bad at handling money. That was the uh, Willoughby and Doherty study. Growing apart, 55%. Not being able to talk together, 53%. Mm-hmm. And the, all of these reasons sort of 
riff and bounce off each other. Yeah, because people were kind of running with this idea that women felt that their partner wasn't committed enough to them. So like, okay, I'm I'm done with this relationship. But it was far more complicated than that. It was more like, well, my partner is cheating on me, which indicates a lack of commitment. So therefore, (laughs) let's get a divorce. When you actually read the NIH article, they admit in the article that one of the limitations to this is that people are almost never polled or asked about why they got a divorce. So when they, so, you know, you'll notice 2012, 20, uh, 2001 is one of these studies. Another one was 2003. They're extremely few. They're extremely far apart. And there are no recent ones in this uh, NIH article about it. So the reason we can only infer from a very small set of past data why people are getting divorced and lack of commitment 85%, but that's a 2001 study. And the the study that says growing apart 55%, that's 2012. That's 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but, I, mean, I, it, I don't think you can reasonably say that women are just abandoning relationships because they're not happy and you know walking yeah. out the door at rates of 70%. Well, the problem is lack of commitment is sort of like an umbrella category, right? Like yes. lack of commitment would encapsulate somebody cheating on you. It would encapsulate being, I don't know, abused. Well, I see on, on this, I see in this this table that they actually separate out infidelity or extramarital affairs. Yeah. At what percentage? Fifty nine um, points. It's 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 yeah. the second highest. Oh oh oh, oh yeah, yeah. Second highest thing cited. And I, you know, I made the comment, my gut tells me that both things are true at the same time, that many women, because women initiate 70% of divorces, many women are getting divorced for legitimate reasons in extremely uncomfortable or unhappy marriages, marriages. Mm -hmm. I also think it, I also think it's true that there, there is a modern day trend. And I, I linked several articles on this when we talked about it. There is a modern day trend of certain subsets of women convincing themselves and each other that you'll be way happier outside of your marriage. And as a matter of fact, the manosphere runs with this and they have this stupid narrative that uh, women are getting divorces just to rob you of your resources and they're riding off into the sunset happy and rich. Yeah, it's called divorce rape in, in their retired right. culture. But that that actually doesn't exist. <laughs> that doesn't exist there, there was an NIH study and there was a Fortune article on this, both very recently. And the the essence of it, before we get into more of the data, is that men get men go through a divorce and they have a really hard time at the start. But because mm-hmm. they're men and they're you know we're generally a competent group of people, they recover, they make their money back, they go on with their life. Whereas a lot of women who get divorced will fall into like a chronic phase of suffering that they're in for ages and, and they, they're less and likely to remarry. Men remarry. Yeah. Men yes, remarry. Yes. They actually go and remarry. Uh, I, I'm familiar with some of this research here. I don't know if it's exactly, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Like I, I, saying it like it's categorically false, I, I think just kind of invites a lot of arguments from uh, commenters on this. I do think it's more nuanced. Definitely with the way that you're I'm not saying I, that it, I'm not yeah. saying that it never happens, but I'm uncomfortable I'm very uncomfortable with sort of this broad assertion that 
the women are destroying marriages and getting out of it happy and stuff. I'll, I'll give you a funny it's, anecdote. I'll give you a funny anecdote. Statistically untrue, though. Like you can have anecdotes, yeah. but like uh, right. Yeah, there's there's That's more what to we do here on by the numbers. Yeah, but I'll give you I'll give you a funny anecdote that kind of paints a, a picture of the of that complexity because my great grandmother tried to basically divorce rape my great grandfather. This always makes me laugh because these are the these were the Russians in my family. These were the Russian Orthodox. You'd think like these these are religious Russian people. Surely they won't like they they'll return to tradition and not do this kind of stuff. But some lawyer got because my my uh, my great grandfather was my great grandmother's uh, second husband. And I, she really only married him because he, he was, he did well for himself. He, um, he made a lot of money. And some lawyer, and this was, I think, around the 80s, some lawyer got into her ear and said, like, well, if you divorce him, you can get all of his money. And so she tried that. Uh, but my great grandfather, I guess, <laughs> was a little bit smarter than her and got an even better lawyer and managed to protect all of his assets. She got nothing and she was just, she just was bitter and angry about it because she just, had been gassed up on all this media. It's like, yeah, like you, you can divorce rape your husband very easily. And she wasn't able to pull it off. Oh yeah. The media, de- the, the media definitely exists. I linked the Institute of family studies article where it was one woman, one woman reviewing the pro divorce writings of some other woman. And it is really goofy. This stuff does exist. And I've I've also heard anecdotes. I also know one guy who got pretty he got pretty wrecked and <laughs> wrecked in the divorce. But the point is that statistically, sure, women women aren't doing that well after divorce. To quote, divorce has a lasting negative impact on finances that in heterosexual divorces affect women the most. After a divorce is finalized, men hold two point five times the amount of wealth women do, and women's household income falls forty one percent compared to men's 23%. And the thing to stress there is that men will generally recover that lost household income and any wealth that's lost, whereas women generally take a much longer time to do it. They called it like chronic despair or something. Whereas women, uh, yeah, taken together, these findings suggest that men's disproportionate strain of divorce is transient, whereas women's is chronic. That's from an NIH article. Yeah, I love sense. that wording. <laughs> Um, my understanding of a lot of this research is that men are generally going to do better on a lot of indicators when they're married. They're going to be happier, they're going to live longer, all of this stuff. This is not necessarily true of women, and in those situations, it does make sense for the woman to want to, to leave because she's actually not improving. Bad, a bad marriage is still good for a man. As long as you were married, doesn't matter if, if everybody's happy, if everybody's getting along. Just being married improves your health outcomes as a male. It, that is not true of women, though. A bad marriage is yeah. destructive for them. So, of course, they're going to want to try to get out of that, and they get out of it, and then they do improve measurably on those sorts of psychological markers and things like that. Men need a certain amount of routine in their lives. But this is something I've also told people who are having marriage issues is I've asked them, do you think, your life will be actually better if you get divorced because I, I, I laid out basically you have the issues of custody of kids and then money like uh, assets and money and then like then even the idea of like what's the likelihood of like do you want to have meet be with someone else down the line what's the likelihood of that happening once you have that kind of baggage under your belt like I, again not, obviously people do remarry they get into new relationships and they're better but 
Um, this is what I've always told people when I've g- given them some – when they've come to me for some advice. And I say, like, you have to look at this – like, look at this in the big picture and what's the likelihood that your life is actually going to improve by being divorced. So even right. if things seem bad now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be that way. But the moment that you get – the moment you get divorced, especially if it wasn't – if it was not thought through, you might just have made your life even worse. And that seems to be very true of women as you're pointing out in the numbers here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the biggest question is who gets the Falcon? <laughs> You'll get the Falcon, McNabb. She'll take the dog. It'll be fine. Well, uh, we, we won't have a dog. So what's what's this? Because we're on this topic of women and divorce. What's this Fortune article here? It's how how divorce laws are designed to create unnecessary financial hardship for women. Oh yeah, yeah. That was yeah. The poor women. They seventy women initiate seventy percent of divorces. Also, you should feel bad for them because they're poor after divorces. I don't feel bad for them if they're poor after a divorce. I mean, I want to make that perfectly clear, just in case I get accused of being a feminist. Like, Sam. I am, I'm not sympathetic. <laughs> I'm not sympathetic toward these, toward a lot of women. I understand, like, if you're being beaten or whatever, then yeah, naturally, any normal person has quite a bit of sympathy for you. But I'm not sympathetic toward the general trend for divorce, and I don't feel bad if laws create unnecessary hardship. You're trying to blow up a family, for Christ's sake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think me and James have been talking about this. I, I, the, way, the way I see the issues with these kinds of situations is that you have a, a kind of a lack of problem solving. You run into some sort of problem, you're going to run into problems. It's just going to happen. And particularly in our kind of individualistic American culture where you think that if you run into a problem, well, the solution is you just get rid of that person, you fire them, you find a different job, whatever. And then you apply that to your relationships and that that's going to set you up for all sorts of misery for years on end. Like sometimes you just got to have like the hard conversations. You got to have like the discussions on things. Yeah, we had data somewhere. I think it was in our private conversation, McNabb. You had found data on on divorces, a substantial amount of men will cop to being bad mm-hmm. communica- to being bad communicators, and they will cop to saying, "Yeah, I kind of I I I didn't communicate." <laughs> and it, it, it was like the, it was like the majority. It was it was like over sixty percent, I think, said that. Yeah, it was it was basically my fault. It was kind of my fault. So when you've got the men saying that, it sort of indicates that. Probably uh, the bigger component is is us males not being able to actually interact successfully and negotiate problems in our relationships. That, Which or we may- just want we just want the woman to like to meet us halfway. Figure out like fit, let's fix this. I've seen that happen as well. Where mm-hmm. whether or not it's actually true, the man will just cop to these things because he want he do, he wants to make it work. And either the woman doesn't know what she wants, or she's being unreasonable, or there's some other like miscommunication issue going right, right. on. Because it's but, it's injurious to your ego whenever you have to admit that like maybe I'm not doing things as good as I could be. Maybe I've created a problem here. Right. And I think it illustrates that not attempting, I'm not really blaming men, but it illustrates that there is sort of a general social decay in the ability of humans in 2023 to communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. And I, yes. it, people, I, I do honestly, I couldn't find any data and I don't really think you could, but I do seriously think that part of this is now we're three or four generations into this idea that men and women and everyone, frankly, are exactly the same and you, we should all approach each other in exactly the same way. And there's not really an, an open understanding of 
how women and men view things very differently and we approach things differently and we can't really we can't imagine why she doesn't agree with everything I'm saying right now. Why is she behaving unreasonably when she's just behaving like a woman and vice versa? I think that general social communication has just broken down to yeah. a very serious well, degree. This I wouldn't be surprised if this is a very American thing because conversations of Americans always feel like you're you're stuck in a hostage negotiation situation with the hostage. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's very true. That is very true. What were you saying, McNabb? I was going to say that a, a, lot, a lot of people that have talked about this type of issue, one of the things they will cite is that romantic marriage has become very idealized, and marriage is, an, is a, marriage is a very humble institution, right? It's basically about raising children. It's like assets and children. That's really what it's there for. It's a container for having kids, making sure they've got a stable upbringing. We've got a man and a woman who can at least not kill each other day to day, you know? Like low-conflict marriage, I think, is the term. That's the ideal, a low-conflict marriage. It does not have to be a loving marriage. You don't have to be romantically obsessed with your partner. And the idea that a marriage should fulfill, like, every need that everyone has, like your partner should be, like, your your coach, it should be, best like, your friend, therapist, your best friend, all of this stuff, it's too much for the humble institution of marriage to bear. Like, uh, Lash talks about that in the in the culture of narcissism. He he talks about basically all the stuff has been loaded because of the the disintegration of community and friendships. That all the stuff that was supposed to be fulfilled by multiple people has been unloaded onto the spouse. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that yes. doesn't work. <laughs> it just doesn't work, especially when you have kids because now they need stuff. Right, you're supposed to have a, a family network. You're supposed to have a community network, friends other relationships with other human beings that fulfill niches. And in the modern era, it's all dumped on your spouse. Mm-hmm. And that yep. is that no human being could possibly live up to that role ever. Yeah. The phrase is you are not enough people. <laughs> yeah, it is very true. So what's the, uh, what's the data? I know it's not going to be probably not good. Um, what's this data on the parental divorce or separation in children's mental health? I'm kind of curious. Because, you know, I'm, I'm very much first and foremost on marriages for children and their well-being has to come first, even if it's at yes. the expense of your own well-being. So I want to know how bad this really is. I, mean, I know I, I, I'm not the child of a, of a divorce situation, but I saw I had half my friends were children of divorced right. parents. So I got to see the gamut on that. Right. And I think. I, you know, I mentioned earlier on the podcast before we get into these numbers that my personal opinion is that you should not be able, if you have children, unless, you know, someone's beating them with an iron rod or something, mm-hmm. you should not be able to get a divorce if they're not a, over 18. If because, it's, yeah, if it's a low conflict marriage, it's just correct. better for them. It's just this, better for them. You, even if you and your wife, you don't even like each other, but you can at least right. tolerate one another right. and not like throw rocks at each other's heads. Like, just stay stable together family environment yeah. is more important for children because they don't grow up to become menace on society. Yeah, because uh, across the board, it is so fucking bad for kids. And yes. that's one of the things I want to push back on. Like a lot of times, Zoomers will will talk about my generation, like we were uh, almost like boomers. Like, oh, you guys, uh, you're like you, you took the the last uh, helicopter out of Saigon. You, you, yeah, the, the last the, helicopter thing. I've heard that. So yeah, many and I'm times. like. Are you fucking kidding me? Like millennials and Gen Xers had to deal with the highest divorce rates. Yeah. Lot, so many yes. of them came from broken homes, and that is monstrously bad for you. As mo- as yes. millennials, we did a lot of soul searching on marriage because I I 
I've had these thoughts and conversations with myself. I've had them with other people. Of like, do I want to get married? Is it is it worth it? Like, you see all this failure. You see all these problems that happen from it. What is? I've seen a lot of millennials, especially, do soul searching on this kind of stuff, which is why I think you find very unique uh, marriage patterns among millennials. It's basically all in or not at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so many of them had their parents divorce. A lot of times, it was like in high school or something like that, or while they were in school, or maybe they grew up in a completely broken home from the beginning. Like uh, I think Mike said, that was his experience. But yep. by far, it was Gen X and millennials that had to deal with the worst of it, and. It is such a terrible thing to have happen to you if you were a kid. It's bad for you. So is there any – do they separate out kind of ages on this? Because I've heard not only from Mike but other people as well that they were fine that their parents divorced because it happened so young. They don't have memories of them being together. So that was never part of their formative memory-making experience. They were already acclimated to the new experience. In they avoided contra- the divorce trauma. Basically. Yeah, Mike contrasts that with friends that he he because that's that was Mike's experience. Mike, Mike contrasts that with friends he knew that were going through that and how much it messed them up. Okay, the worst age is supposedly elementary school age, six to twelve is the worst. Makes, that would make you're, sense. You're you're old enough to I remember it. That. You're old enough to remember the good times. <laughs> old enough um, to remember the fights. <laughs> the stuff like yeah. you 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 retain it all at that age, basically. And you're not old enough to sort of process it in a rational but, manner or young enough honestly, to ignore it. Honestly, from the looks of it, it's just – it's bad across the board and it's kind of hard to even really pick like what age is the worst. Yeah, it's undesirable generally. I mean – It's just so, across the board, it's not good for you. The children uh, of – the offspring of divorced or separated parents um, are Are you looking also, at, the same, at the same paragraph I am? <laughs> Also more likely to engage in risky sexual behavior, yep. live in poverty, mm-hmm. and experience their own family instability. Yep. Risk typically increases by a factor of 1.5 to 2. And I know people that are oh, 1.52. That's double. Yeah. You are twice as likely to have these problems. That's 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 incredibly serious. That's incredibly Substance serious. Substance abuse, I, everything. Yeah, so they- – only about 60% of U.S. children live with their married biological parents in a low second only to Latvia. Go America. Go America, yeah. And adolescence, this is one I found, this is a national longitudinal study on adolescent health. Adolescents suspended or expelled from school. People, children in an intact married family, it only happens to 20.3%. Children always in a single family, 50.2%. Cohabiting step family, about 41%. Single divorced parent family, 37%. So it's, it's more than double if you're in an intact family versus a divorced family. A divorce, a, a child in a divorced family is thir- is more than double as likely to be suspended or expelled from school. That's an incredible statistic. I also know that getting remarried doesn't help this at all. Like being in a, a, a step family is not really yeah. doing you any Ma- favors. Married step family is still thirty six percent, and so mm-hmm. that's that's sixteen points higher. Yeah, it's it's still not ideal. Yeah, it's not as bad, but it's not good. Yep. And then adolescent hard drug use, mm-hmm. intact intact married family about eleven percent, married step family eighteen point three percent. Uh, intact cohabiting family, so that would be your parents aren't married, but they're both your parents. About it's about nine percent cohabiting step family, 
about 19%. That's 10% higher. Single divorced parent family, 18 or 15.18%. And then always single parent family. So I'm guessing that's someone who was born and raised by only one parent their entire life. It's 8.23%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, I, I think that's probably a component of why the opiate epidemic was particularly bad because you had so many people predisposed to drug addiction to begin with. I can only imagine how many marriages that the opiate epidemic destroyed. Oh, good Lord. And then how many children it destroyed of divorced marriages. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this is core to the point that it, it, divorce is not just about the two people who want out of the marriage. It's about all, all of these little people who are going to grow up to be a me- either a benefit or a menace to society or somewhere in between. Yeah. And divorce makes it much more likely that they're going to be a problem and not a contributor to your to your society. And this is where divorce as an institution for the community in, or I'm sorry, marriage as an institution for community and nation come into play. And it's something I've written about extremely extensively on white papers. If you want your fertility rate to be good, and if you want families to be healthy, you have to have intact married people. Two people have to be married at a, at a, mm modest age usually about 24 and they will generally produce the number of children that your country needs and they will generally be productive so long as they don't get divorced these aren't complicated issues it's generally not about finances it's generally not about sort of other external issues of social decay and liberalism this is yeah. just what your what your society needs. I often get frustrated when people try to distract from these sort of very core principles. Yeah, and I mean, just across the board, like if you think about what divorce is going to do to a, a family situation, because you, now you have to have both people making an income. If they weren't before, you've got to split this custody time, schedule all of that. It's it's a fucking nightmare, absolute nightmare. Right, and the battle the battle is I think part of what the battle is part of what seriously damages these children because when you look at the drug use and the always single parent family, so that child never had another parent, the drug use is about the same as someone in a married intact family. But the entire middle of the graph where people have step parents or cohabiting step family or you're with a single parent but experience the divorce, it's Eight percent, five percent, eight, nine percent higher in drug use. That mm-hmm. is a very significant statistic. Yeah. Now, as far as like, um, let's see, push back against some of this manosphere stuff. Like well, the the the, the okay. idea that women are hypergamous in these situations and that they're oh, just we go. Kind of <laughs> monkey branching their way to like better and better partners is fucking bullshit. Like, well, none le- of this is borne out by their. Less likely to remarry. They're less yeah. likely to remarry. In 2013, some 64% of eligible men remarried compared with 52% of women. That's a 12-point discrepancy. Yeah. Well, I'm going I'm to play devil's advocate here because I know what their, what their response to this would be. So that you, um, you respond to what I'm saying here then because what they would say is, well, it doesn't matter that they're not doing better. It's women are dumb. They're just like they're following these instincts and they're being encouraged to make these instincts, which is what's leading to the degradation of society. It doesn't matter that's not working out for them. They're pursuing uh, their a woman brain strategy and being encouraged to do so. 
Okay, well, what's the woman brain strategy? That I they mean, think so they can do better. My anecdotal my anecdotal experience with the, with this and monkey branchers because I actually went through a relationship with a monkey brancher is that it's not it's it's not rational at all and they don't they're not monkey branching from qual one quality person to a higher quality it's just like a it's almost a sociopathic behavior psychopathic behavior of just being unable to be in a reasonable relationship so, for a reasonable amount of time. My problem with the hypergamy theory is it's not coherent because it doesn't give me the ability to make accurate predictions about anything. Like, okay, what qual- what qualifiers are women looking for when they're trying to, quote-unquote, do better? Are they looking for a more attractive mate? Are they looking for one in higher status, like one with more money? What is it? And well, those I definitions are not coherent. I think their argument would be is that because what uh, uh, what gives you status is often a cultural and fluc- uh, a fluctual thing. It can it can change over time. That it, obviously what women are going to be hypergamous to is going to change as well. If a society values uh, money and wealth more than physical attraction or alpha maleness, essentially, then that's what they're going to be hypergamous mm-hmm. to. If they're but a society values say. Um, because you see this sometimes with the race, with the more racist manosphere stuff, that the society values um, the Negro style of the perceived Negro style of alpha male swagger and attractiveness, and that's what women are. Okay, so are you saying that, that we live in a society where a female could go for either a man who has much of money as a gold digger, or, or like, let's say an older white male who's got a huge income, right? He's got a bunch of money, so she goes for him. But she could also go for Tyrone, who has like a bunch of felonies on his criminal record and makes no money really other than from selling drugs. Both of these could be simultaneously true. Yes, they, what they would argue is like they go for both, alpha fucks, beta bucks. That's the argument. That's That very quickly gets into unfalsifiable territory because it makes it impossible for me to predict exactly what a female is going to go after. Like which one is she going to take? The guy with the money, or is she going to take the the? the uh, the... Well, what, what they what they would say is like she wants to she wants to have sex with Tyrone and then settle down with Bob. Or the but she's going to divorce Bob anyway. <laughs> yeah, and then she and then she and then she can go have sex with Tyrone more. That, that's I mean just this is I'm I'm oversimplifying <laughs> their arguments, but like this is the essence of what like of what I've heard. Okay, so if that were the case, then you would you would predict that women would be particularly promiscuous compared relative to men, right? Well, that's what they say. Like they do say that. Oh well, that's been. But we we've clearly. already broken down that. Go back. <laughs> go back two episodes. We've gone through that data. Bullshit. We yeah, went through that bullshit. data. <laughs> I love but, that we can reference past episodes now. We just be like, no, you need to go back two episodes and listen to the sex yeah. episode, then go listen it, to the boomer episode. If, if that's the thesis, is that the, I mean, it's obviously stupid because women don't have a very high sex drive relative to men anyway. But if that were the thesis, then that one's already been thrown in the trash because they they're not doing that. Not doing that at all. Yes, no, we, we, without, we we broke down the whole narrative in uh, episode thirteen. Well, without pink misting this horse, I found that I was looking at some of this Pew stuff, and this was kind of this is a separate topic, but related to this. I thought this was interesting. What does friendship look like in America? Since we were talking about how uh, things that you're supposed to have with other people is being offloaded onto the spouse, and this is uh, data from just a few a uh, few weeks ago. You have eight percent of Americans saying they have no close friends. Seven percent mm-hmm. one yep. close friend. Fourteen uh, percent two close friends. Eighteen uh, percent three close friends. Four close friends is thirteen percent, and five plus is thirty-eight percent. So more than half of people report having four or fewer to none close friends. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, and there's also, and also a majority of adults, 63% say all or most of their close friends are the same race or ethnicity as them. Those varies yeah, across racial and ethnic groups. So what, well, what, what I'm hearing from this is basically the reason why you're having this uptick in people not having, uh, close friends is because it's the disintegrate, like people would just rather have no friends than be friends with their black neighbor. Is okay, well, hell like yeah. Yeah. The other the other interesting thing is I wonder so percent saying that they have the number of close friends not counting their family. I do seriously wonder how many people counted their spouse or their girlfriend. I, mm-hmm. I, I that's a, that is a genuine question. I don't know if Pew controlled for that, but I, I seriously because I know a lot of people who who's your best friend? Well, my girlfriend is. Well, okay. Like, well, I think they're also including uh, co-workers because if you look at the data down here, like I'm kind of reading into this, but uh, women, for example, like work and family are, are some of the most popular conversation topics among close friends in the U.S. I'm wondering if like this is including stuff like women talking to their co-workers about work and that's like that must be a close friend. Like, I If that's how they're if that's how they're tracking this, if that's what they're including in this, then the numbers are going to be a lot worse. Yeah, that's my point. Like I people. People are counting friends who they they see at work, who they don't do anything, who who can't be part, really seriously can't be part of a social support network outside of work. If you're counting your girlfriend, it's the same thing. Like you're still you still have this expectation that she's going to do everything. If you have, this is going to sound really terrible, but it's also true. If you have that one friend you talk to on Discord, like these, I don't. I think that when people are counting these friendships. That this data is obscuring how bad it actually is. I can't I prove so that, too. but that, that's my theory. Well, I'm looking. I'm looking at how they answered the questions, and it's it's actually this is worthless data in my opinion because the, I don't see a good definition on what a close friend is, or uh, this seems extremely poorly defined. And so, looking at the data that they're coming up with, that it's it's got to be even worse than it, than, it, yeah, even, yeah. than it already is. So people are entirely reliant on their spouse and or romantic partner. If you have one to begin with. Yes. It is, it is just general social decay. And I don't, Mm. it's incredibly hard to, (laughs) it's incredibly hard to give a prognosis on that other than to say, this society is totally screwed. We have to scrap it and (laughs) we have to scrap it and start from the bottom again. Yeah, I mean, McNabb and I came to that conclusion when we did the uh, the shows on infra- like town design and rural America. Like, people have to live in walkable areas, and they have to live in rural areas, and they have to be married. Like that is that is the recipe for a society which reproduces itself and is relatively functional. We are so far from that kind of society that whatever America is today, that has to be shoved into the trash bin and we have to start from the bottom up again. That is sort of the place where we're at. And it includes, I think, a significant amount of uh, the social attitudes around family formation and marriage and divorce. So so one other thing I'd like to ask, and you might not have the answer to this. uh, Did you see anything, numbers or or, or policies, suggestions or anything like that, that on the efficacy and effectiveness of marriage interventions for people that are suffering from the social decay. Oh, oh you, you, mean, you mean like getting a falcon? 
perhaps, but because I, I just I just think like you know when we talk about this stuff, sometimes I think about about our imaginary state. Like this is our Plato's Republic where we get to shape things as we want, and I I imagine that there would be a lot more resources and accessible ones for people that need help with their marriages, whatever that might, whatever that might be. Now, obviously the ideal to me, I think is community intervention, but um, I don't know if you saw anything w- w- in this research about the efficacy oh, of various dear. interventions. Oh, of fam- the Institute of Family Studies, who I can't recommend enough, they do incredible work on, um, they do incredible work on a pretty wide range of stuff. About 40% of people will report seeking a marriage intervention, 38.3% to be precise in this, uh, july 2021 article now i am looking for their data on how successful this is how 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 successful is marriage intervention here ifs give me well, numbers what, what i found says a uh, positively impacts 70 percent. i don't know what that breakdown what that means right what is positively what is positively impacting was it fucking me uh, past involvement in a marital intervention by itself was related to better scores on the quality of conflict resolution across all eight outcome measures. Early, mar- early married participation in counseling was related to significantly higher scores, meaning better marriages, I guess, after controlling for other factors of the model across six of the eight. Oh, across six of the eight outcome measures, black scored higher than other racial groups. <laughs> <laughs> holding other effects in constant. So I guess marriage intervention really helps blacks. I well, saw that, an, uh, well that, an, that actually makes sense because if you have the agency to be able to go like to go true. and do that, you're going to like that's you're you're already working with a lot more than you can typically work with in that demographic. Yeah. I I saw another interesting statistic that if if you get married and as a male you disapprove of your wife's friends within the first year, that's a predictor that you're eventually going to be divorced. But that does not hold true for the, the uh, black population. I remember <laughs> seeing a very quir- – like because I, I love these quirky type statistics. I remember seeing a statistic once. I don't know how accurate it was on interracial marriages. And it, 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 it just points to the, the pure exceptional quality. Cause I think the, I think the, the marriages that failed the most were Asian male, black female. <laughs> and there has to be either what, that or, or, or black or, it was either that or black male or may, actually maybe been black male, Asian female. I know it was one, it was like a weird mix like that. And then the marriage, the interracial marriages that had the most success were black female, white male. And it's just because like, Again, it goes to like that's a very that's a very selection bias thing going on there because that's a very unique demographic that that is something I see increasingly omnipresent in media these days, and it feels very recent is to see this high visibility of of white males yeah. and black females. It's so in odd the, in the new in the new Frasier Frasier's son Freddie, and the actor for him is terrible, but I digress. He has a a mulatus. Mm-hmm. Romantic interest. I, I see it, it everywhere. I see it trending on social media. I see it in real life. Okay, I, here I, I, I have what I was looking at here. So like, uh, what? So it's just some picture I have right here, uh, and I'll link it in the chat. So interracial divorce rates compared to divorce rates among white couples. So white couples are used as the baseline for this. Let me just go ahead and. I love being the baseline for everything. It's great. Mm-hmm. So let me just go ahead in here so you guys can see it for yourselves so with white says the baseline uh black male white female is 200 percent more likely to do to divorce 
Um, 59% uh, more likely for Asian male, white female. Uh, white male, black female are 44% less likely to divorce than whites. Um, white male, Asian female, 4% more likely to divorce. And then there was no data on black and Asian. I was, so I was mistaken on that. What's fascinating, what's fascinating to me about that data is I honestly expected that white male, Asian female couples would be less likely to do, not by much, but in general would be less likely to divorce than uh, your average white couple. So that's slightly surprising. Yeah, I, I have to figure out where that data came from. I remember seeing this years and years ago. I mean, it I, it's probably it's probably very accurate. Um, it's 200 percent more likely black man. That's hilarious. And oh, that's another group of like serial bad relationship, marry and divorce. Uh, that's another serial marriage and divorce demographic, white women who marry black men. Um, my the the data the data that I'm looking through, I can't find any specific data that says uh, marriage counseling prevents X number of divorces or stops X number of divorces. Basically, what I'm seeing is that it does across the board across the board marriage counseling improves the quality of marriages quite significantly even ones that are in really bad shape but i can't find anything that says we have prevented x number of divorces which i'm not surprised that that seems like a statistic you couldn't get to begin with so somebody made a meme like this is like this is why like, you guys want to talk about the manosphere stuff because like t- like i don't know where like again i don't know where this data came from but some manosphere guy or I assume, like, you know these types, made mm-hmm. a meme version of this, or, like, it's the exact same image. Notice how sharply the divorce rate increases as you get with a white woman. Yeah, that's the salient issue here, sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, that sounds like a problem. He looked at the, looked at the 200% divorce rate for, for black male, uh, white females, and like, ah, the white woman is the issue here. You know, I have the same thing. There is data somewhere. I have it saved. I wish I knew where I put the article. It's in one of my many, many, many notes documents. Um, so it would take me forever to find it. But, you know, <laughs> I'm a little irritated. Because of white male, Asian female marriage rates and those marriages often produce children, there are white men have more interracial children in America than white women do now. It's not a significant difference, but men have pulled ahead. Yeah. White I, men are also slightly more likely to interracially marry than white women. Like this mm-hmm. is not a salient <laughs> them white women's that is not a salient issue here. I I have said that we'll probably get into this when we do like a one on rural populations or something, but the the uh black children really just stand out more, I think, especially yes. if like you're in an area that's predominantly white. And then you see that you've got some I mean, some woman me, with like three black kids. It really right. sticks out at you. These women make bad decisions. I am not excusing the fact that these women make poor decisions. Something Alex and I talk about all the time is how when you're from rural America and you go out into rural America, something you see quite often is the boomer grandmother saddled with the mixed race mm-hmm. grandkids. And she is right now. She's she's fat and she's tired and she's having to lug these misbehaving brats around. Yep. That is it's a very common sign in rural America. Oh, oh. (laughs) yeah, this that picture came from Jim Goad. 
What? Yeah, like I found this source on a thought catalog, and Jim Goad wrote an article on. The, it's Jim Goad. That's where that little picture comes from. I'll include okay. this in the notes. Like, but yeah, like he, he, I found the source of that little uh, interracial divorce rates picture. Interesting. Um, but point being, I'm not excusing that these women make bad, bad decisions. But the point is that it, it, interracial marriages and having children is white men are slightly worse. Yes, there's mm-hmm. there. You can make quality arguments, but the point is that it is sort of a general social degeneration. Yes, and it, that yeah. that is it's, it's that, just, that it, general social degeneration is more important to me than assigning blame to a particular sex. The, the, the visibility is just, just seems higher. Like, yes, it is more it. offensive to see. Like I don't deny that. Like when you see it out in the world, it is very offensive the, to your sensibilities. And the absolute numbers are a different story, but the yes. eyeballs, you cannot help but notice this. You're like, what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> what the hell am I looking at? Like, what like my oh my god, my my favorite is uh, let's see, rural communities where you see white woman, black kids, no black males to be seen anywhere, no adults, no adult black males anywhere in sight. Uh, that's that's a good one. The other one is like you'll see the the woman out with her family. She's married to a white man. They've got multiple children, but the oldest one is black. Another classic. <laughs> Yo, another, I, there's another another classic. I encounter this one. Um, another another fairly common one is the white woman who has multiple different colored <laughs> mixed oh, race yeah. children, and they all have a different father. I worked with a woman like that. Now it was she was self reflective. And she would admit, like, no, I really just like random men of color. And she had four different children with four different fathers. <laughs> like, yeah. At least you, like, I guess it's cool that you're self-conscious enough to admit it. Now, please get away from me. Um, but, but that's another one. Though, what, what I do tend to see, thinking about it, is I do see married couples more often. If it's a race-mixed married couple, it's with a white male. Yes, the, again, that's something I have observed. Lead in the marriage in the marriage category by two or three points. Pew think, has data on this. I think the focus the, uh, and the attention people get when they see, for example, a white woman with a black male is just because of the, the nature of our mm-hmm. different perspectives on men and women. It's you know, sperm sperm is plentiful, eggs are eggs are yeah, yeah, and, well, yeah, yeah, it is more horrific to see. I don't deny that they have yeah, done. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying the reason why like it stands out more to us is because of our different perspectives on the sexes. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, you, 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 you see, like a, a white man with like an Asian woman, there's like, oh, it's a conquest. I don't really necessarily think it's the or best a failed or, or a failed male. Like you just kind of yeah, like, yeah, yeah, something like that. Failed male. <laughs> the failed male. <laughs> yeah, either con- either conquest or failed male or both. I dug into the data on this once while we're still talking about marriages. I dug into the data once because I have always refused – every Asian woman I have ever known has been a complete bitch without exception. Just remarkable. So I dug into the data on this once, and I wish I had pulled it all together for this. Those are not happy relationships. These the the men in these relationships report being miserable. The men in these relationships report being beaten down. The men in these relationships report thinking about killing themselves more often. These are not happy relationships. They're, these they're dra- yeah they're dragon ladies and dragon. tiger yeah tiger. Uh, 
I, I used to live among them. Like, I, 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 I know what gene Asian stealers. women are like because I, I lived among them. I lived in South Korea for three years. It's, mm-hmm. And like the whole idea of the of like the traditional woman, like the, those are modern – like South Korea and Japan and China are modern countries. Like they they do have like some remnants of like their old rustic cultures that you'll still like you'll find like if you want to go find like a country bumpkin uh, woman that's got messed up well, teeth you can, you can go do that but it's well the thing is women. with the traditional marriages it's not uncommon to find yourself in a situation where the woman is the dictator of the household. I mean that's just like that's just been a trope like in all of humanity's history of the hen pe- of the hen pecking mm-hmm. wife like it's just that's. Like, you think you're, you're going to find this in every culture. You think you're going to get some submissive woman, but she's the household dictator. <laughs> My grandfather was <laughs> like that. Like for example, well, for example, because like you know, I know this type of people that they have these weird fantasies about Japanese women, and what they're what they're often zeroing in on. And there's a term that they have in Japanese for this called the the Yamato Nadeshiko, which is basically the ideal perfect woman who is emblematic of ja- uh, uh, of pure japanese culture she's like she's this the, she watches you from afar because she can't like she can't bear to be in your presence she follows be- three steps behind you and like she's utterly devoted to you and like the japanese themselves make fun of this like they like mm-hmm. it's considered to be because it's like an art it's like an artistic kind of thing you it's something you put in like, your art human it's not human, yeah. It's 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 an ideal, but it's one that you like wanted like depict, kind of like how in art you want to depict the mo- the highest form of aesthetic feminine beauty within art. Right. But you you don't get lost in the art and expect that that's how people are actually going to look. That's an ideal, and so they have the same aspect of this in Japanese culture, the Yamato Nadeshiko. and but you have these people who have no no real understanding of of Jap- Japanese culture outside of Japanese media, often just anime. And so they think that these, like those women actually exist. And no, Japan's been a modernized country since the, the late 19th century. And they grapple internally with the idea of the Yamato Nadashiko. Um, they have their, but that's, that's for, that's their culture. That's for them to figure that out, what their, what, what their cultural views on their women are. But like, that's not how Japanese women actually are. Right. I mean, that's, that's one of the things Kevin McDonald was talking about in one of his books too, is that, uh, in white cultures, it's, it is actually much more of an egalitarian arrangement in terms of the woman not just being a submissive, like, little sex kitten. That's not how it works. Like, they tend to actually do things like manage households. And even whenever they didn't have the right to vote, you can you can bet your were, ass that women had an impact on who men voted for. <laughs> they were active in – so this is something that gets touched on in Bowling Alone, and this is something that I personally do a lot of research on, and from a policy perspective, I'm incredibly interested in. One of the downsides of getting women involved in politics – and by politics, I mean directly involving them as an interest group in the state – is mm-hmm. that it killed civil society because women were the backbone of civil society. You know, um, for example, the Red Cross. A man, it was a man who started the Red Cross, but in virtually every country on earth where the Red Cross is present, it was women who built the backbone of the institutional Red Cross. This, apl- this applies Lawrence to. Lawrence Nightingale. Yeah. Yeah. This mm-hmm. applies to everything from your local bake sale to your PTA bowling leagues this this is the stuff that women did before involvement with the state and we have we have killed that that's oh with, my god that's also true of like daughters of the confederacy like the, yes. all of these confederate monuments that's daughters of the confederacy yes. that's, uh, 
Oh, look um, at how daughter, daughters to... of the American Revolution, who are yes. the, yep. the biggest drivers of civic engagement in the United States. This is what they. This is what most women were involved in to some degree before they became an interest group in the state. Mm-hmm. This is what they did. We have murdered civil society by this insistence that we're all the same and women need careers in this crap. We killed civil society. Yeah, yeah and, they, and they also and they what what feminism did uh, the the state like well the state and culture and NGO corporation push of the type of feminism we got was they this Jewish feminism is really what I should have said is it poisoned the idea like all that women do is be homemakers and that's not true it's like women of means were both homemakers and engaged in the community and the civic society they were. They were the glue that that kept together. In fact, actually, I, I remember Penty Linkola in his book uh, uh, "Can Life Prevail" had a chapter when he was visiting uh, across the border in Russia and how bad the demographics were there. Like the men were all like the women were out in the fields uh, picking like picking berries and the like or doing the uh, the agricultural work, and then like the men were all just alcoholics, drunk in the in in the houses. And he's reflecting on this from a from a as from a Finnish perspective because there was a lot more uh, the Finnish society was a lot more balanced and healthier compared to the Russian society he was seeing on the on the other side. And he had this thought about how women are the continuity of life. He said he put it in the sense that women are stronger, but what he meant by that is that because women often are the continuity of life, they give life, and they're often the ones that care for people when they're when they're dying. There's the floor, there's the nursing aspect of it. There's the the caretaking of of parents aspect, but you can also extrapolate that to they were the caretakers of civic society as well because of their yes, they were. That was their that was their job. They maintained they maintained the institutions of civil society while government maintained sort of the very basic national insecurity apparatuses and men were involved in, you know, that sort of actual security work. Right, right, right. That's that is how it went, and that is the superior system. I maintain it to this that is the desirable system. So I think we have said almost everything we have to say, and we generally keep to our hour long format, so Anything else before we wrap up? I guess my uh, closing thought, I know that uh, people want to get out of here and we do want to keep this kind of short. I I see people have turned marriage, particularly in our circles, like an aspirational goal. And I think you need to be kind of realistic and think hard about what you're actually getting into here. Because people will say marriage takes a lot of work. But what they don't really seem to emphasize when they say that is by work, it is a job. It It is going to feel much more like a job. But it's a job that you cannot retire from <laughs> uh, if, especially if, if you have children all right well that's a good place to leave it thank you very much gentlemen Thank you.